All right, we want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and uh, thanks for your patience as we're getting started a little bit behind uh, today. Uh, sorry about that. I was just uh, waxing eloquent with some of our folks here enjoying uh, the fellowship and looked at my watch and realized, oh my goodness, it's five after nine. So uh, we are going to go back to Revelation 21 and 22. We've kind of camped out there the last couple of weeks, and I don't know about you, but it's just really encouraging to me as I, uh, as I read those chapters and I kind of made some more notes this week uh, for uh, our uh, time together here in the 9 o'clock hour. But one thing that struck me as I opened my Bible to Revelation 21, you know, the, it's an English translation, the New King James, and it's got section headings. Of course, those section headings were not in the original text, but it's just a way to kind of help you navigate and see what each section is about. And right there at the top of chapter 21, it says, All Things Made New. And that's really what the last two chapters of the Bible are all about, is, uh, is just when the Bible uh, comes full circle and God's plan of the ages uh, returns back to the pre-fall estate and we see the curse of sin removed. So uh, just a couple of quick announcements. You know, it's been a, a quiet uh, week uh, in terms of uh, podcasts and things because we didn't have our midweek podcast and then... Um, I didn't have any other special uh, appearances on any type of podcast or radio show. Uh, so what we've started doing is I'm really trying to focus the next few weeks on finishing Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist. And by the way, we get emails and calls regularly, people saying, when's Volume 2 coming out? So I always like to mention, I know you heard it here at Plum Creek Chapel, but we get a lot of people that listen to the podcast or watch these videos, and we're always picking up new folks. So I want to reiterate that the Volume 2 will be out sometime in October. It'll be available for purchase, and I'm really heads down uh, between now and then putting the finishing touches on it, so appreciate your prayers. You know, already we're sensing just some more spiritual warfare just in terms of uh, the devil trying to distract and uh, keep, keep me, keep, you know, keep me distracted on, on from away from working on the book. But uh, it is, uh, you know, Spirit of the Antichrist Volume 2 is going to cover a lot of topics that we did not cover in Volume 1. If, you, if you've read Volume 1, you know at the end of the book I do kind of give a quick overview of some of the topics that we're going to be talking about in Volume 2. And uh, it's, it's definitely going to be a good companion volume. I was talking to Barry during, uh, before we started here, and it, it really my goal is for Volume 1 and 2 to be a, just a resource set for people to familiarize themselves with the Luciferian conspiracy, uh, the plan of the ages from Satan's perspective, uh, and from a biblical perspective, of course, and who the earthly co-conspirators are in Satan's attempt to take over the world and usher in the one-world system. So uh, it's not, uh, I think hopefully each chapter and each section of each chapter will deal with a different topic that you, you can look in the table of contents and say, hey, you know, what, what do I need to know about Klaus Schwab or what do I need to know about Bohemian Grove or the Bilderberg Group or UFOs and those type of things, and you can cut right to that chapter. So be in prayer for us as we kind of come down the home stretch on that book. Uh, in the meantime, what I'm going to be doing uh, just to, to have some podcasts out there, since I won't be doing a whole lot of new stuff over the next uh, few weeks, is uh, reposting some of our radio shows. A lot of you may not realize, but we have a regular radio show on broadcast radio that airs in the Midwest uh, we've had for years. And it's a simple, short little 25-minute radio program, and each one's on a different topic or mostly Bible passages or theological issues. And so this past week, we uh, reposted a couple of those from the archives. One was the story of Joseph, 
And the other was, uh, I, I look at Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. And so uh, if you're interested in that, you can go back and check those out. They're the, going to be the most recent podcasts in our podcast list. And more to come on that. Hopefully you're finding those edifying and, and encouraging. Uh, don't forget uh, that uh, the Volume 1 is now available as a PDF in uh, uh, e-reader format. You can import the PDF right into Kindle or other uh, e-readers. So you can check that out, uh, that out if that's something that interests you. Uh, we are going to be this week on Tuesday... Of course, tomorrow's a holiday, but Tuesday we're going to be back on with the Christian Underground News Network. You know, we used to do that every Tuesday for about a year and a half, and then Curtis got real sick and had to kind of restructure some things, and so now we're going to be on the first Tuesday of every month, and that's, of course, this Tuesday. So you can look forward uh, to that uh, actual uh, new podcast that's, uh, that's coming up. All right, uh, so with that, let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 21. And uh, we've been talking the last few weeks a lot about the New Jerusalem, and I think we've covered that fairly well. But I felt like we were kind of scattered just topically and thematically. We were in based on questions and answers and stuff. We were kind of uh, all over the map, so to speak. So I want to just sort of take the time starting this week to go uh, verse by verse through this rich section of uh, the Bible, the final two chapters of the Bible, and talk about the eternal state. You know, this is where we get uh, the teaching uh, on the eternal state. You know, we, uh, if you look at uh, the, the various, let me go back here. If you look at this chart, you'll see uh, that we call it the eternal state. I'm trying to get there. There it is. Um, in, the, in the far end of the screen there, and notice, it, it, I don't know if it does, does it have the references on there? Yeah, at the bottom, Revelation uh, 20 and 21, it should add 22 there for the eternal state. So, uh, you know, there are some Old Testament prophets that sometimes talk about the millennial phase of the kingdom, and then other times they shift into the eternal phase of the kingdom. Uh, but by and large, our biblical teaching on the subject of the eternal state comes from Revelation uh, 21 and 22. So let's start out. Uh, with uh, John's vision here of the New Jerusalem. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we've talked about it uh, in various ways already, but he, he gives us in the first eight verses of chapter 21 both what he sees and what he hears. Um, what he sees and what he hears. So he starts out with a new heaven and a new earth. And I've pointed out before that in Isaiah's prophecy, it's the new heavens, plural, and earth. And we've talked about how in the Bible, the heavens have three layers or levels, if you will. There's the atmosphere that we see where the birds fly and the planes fly and so forth. Then there's the celestial area with the stars and the planets. But the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as new heaven and earth, um, but it, it, it's really new heavens and earth uh, because of the different aspects of the heavenlies. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the heavenlies. So he sees the new heaven and the new earth, and he sees the holy city, which is what? The new Jerusalem, descending uh, from heaven. And I spent some time demonstrating that I believe the new Jerusalem uh, is directly connected to the new heavens and does not come into being until the eternal state. We don't have a new Jerusalem during the millennium. We have a Jerusalem, to be sure, and it's a Jerusalem unlike any other Jerusalem up to that point in this earth, 
uh, it, its boundaries are expanded, the Temple Mount is expanded, the Temple itself is uh, enormous, as Ezekiel describes. But that's not the New Jerusalem. Uh, the New Jerusalem is part of the eternal state. And then, if we look at verses 3 and 4, John hears the words of an angel. And the angel says that God is going to uh, mingle among the people. And that, as we talked about, you know, God shall be their God, you know, and, and I shall, you shall be my people, I shall be your God. That is a, a stunning development for Jewish culture in particular. Because remember, you know, God was always distant. I mean, they, they couldn't look on God. They couldn't, they had to go through human mediators and, uh, you know, the, the high priest even when he would once a year go into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, you know, would do so with great trepidation and they would, you know, tie a rope around him so that if he was struck dead from being in the presence of God's holiness, they could drag him out without having to go in after him and those types of things. And, and it was, uh, I mean, God was clearly uh, there. You know, he is the I am, as uh, he told Moses. But he was, he was there was uh, just this, more a focus on transcendence than imminence in the Jewish biblical world. Um, and so the, the reason for that is because of sin, right? Sin brought death. Death in the Bible is separation. And, you know, if you think about Adam and Eve in the garden before the sin entered the world, they were fellowshipping and mingling with God every day. They were walking with Him and talking with Him. You know, the great old hymn, In the Garden, right? Isn't that the name of that hymn? And He walks with me and He talks with me and He... How's it go? And He... And He what did you say? Tells me I am His own. There you go. I love this song. I almost want to sing it. But anyway, uh, it's, it, it, that's a picture of the intimacy that God's creation, mankind, that He made in His own image, have with God until death, separation, entered the equation. And that's what we've been dealing with then now for 6,000 years. So in Christ, as the members of the church age uh, who believe the gospel, we have an unprecedented level of intimacy that anyone else post-fall never had. But it still pales in comparison with the intimacy and the access and the relationship that we will have with God when all things are made new, when we are no longer in the presence of sin. Um, so remember, uh, theologically, uh, and I'm a theologian, so I tend to think in these categories, we think about the three aspects of, of salvation. In the Bible, salvation just means deliverance or rescue, and it has three uh, senses. We are rescued once and for all from the penalty of sin when by faith we trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. And so in that moment we receive eternal life. We are eternally saved. We are justified is what the Bible calls that. meaning declared righteous. So that's being saved from the penalty of sin. Then as believers, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ and learn to trust Him more and learn to walk by faith and not by sight and learn to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, we are being saved in the present tense from the power of sin, right? Hopefully, the more mature we get as believers, or the old, hopefully the older we get, the more mature we get as believers, and the more mature we get, the less sin has dominion over us, the less we're inclined to walk in the flesh, right? And that's called sanctification, what the Bible refers to as progressive sanctification, uh, being saved from sin's power. 
But one day, if you know the Lord, we will all be rescued once and for all from sin's very presence. And that's what the Bible refers to as glorification. So we have been saved from sin's penalty once and for all. If you know the Lord, you, you shall never come under condemnation. You shall never face judgment. You've passed from death to life. Saved from sin's penalty. Being saved from sin's power as we grow in the Lord, one day we will be saved from sin's very presence. And that's what Revelation 21 and 22 are all about. So the angel uh, you know, tells, God, tell, tells John that God's pe- God will mingle among his people. That we will you know, have this new found relationship uh, with God. And that he will you know, uh, minister to his people. He's going to wipe every tear from their eyes. Remember that's just a metaphor for the fact that there will be no more sadness or sorrow. Um, so, you know, a lot of times, as I think I mentioned, people will say, well, if, if, if he's going to wipe away your tears, that means there must be tears in heaven. No, that's not what that means. In fact, if you read the full verse in verse 4, he says, there will be no sorrow nor crying. So the phrase, wipe away your tears, is just a, uh, a uh, metaphorical way of saying you won't ever be sad. And then in verses three, uh, uh, 5 through 8, God speaks... And in verse 5 says, He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. So in a very real sense, the Bible begins with the declarative words of God as He spoke the world into existence. And then it ends with God once again speaking and making things new once again. Uh, and He says, Right, for these words are true and faithful. Uh, I find it interesting that we see this reference to faithfulness and truth uh, a couple of times at least here at the end of uh, the story. Remember when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, He's riding on the white horse, the armies in heaven, that's us, the church, the bride of Christ, are riding with Him. And He says in Revelation 19 that He has a name. Uh, Let's see if I can find it. It says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And that is uh, really God's way of declaring that uh, deception is no more. You know, lies and deception have run their course. Remember, uh, the Antichrist is unveiled at the beginning of the seven years in Revelation chapter 6, and he's the first rider on the white horse, but he's an imposter. He's an Antichrist, not the real Christ. This, when Christ comes back, this time it will be the faithful and true one. And God here you know, says and reiterates the fact that His words are true and faithful. So part of the spirit of the Antichrist that is at work in the world today is obviously a spirit of deception. That's what the whole first volume of the book uh, uh, was about, was deception. And it's getting harder and harder to distinguish you know, truth from lies and uh, you know, the truth from deception. But... When, when, when we fellowship with God in the new heavens and the new earth, in the eternal state, you know, we can count on, of course we can count on it now too, but we can count on everything being true and faithful. We don't have to discern, as First John tells us in chapter 4, you know, whether something is of God or not. God's words are always true, you know, and we, we know the truth by knowing the word of God, Jesus said. But, uh, you know, in the new heavens we won't have to distinguish between the two because there will only be truth, if that makes sense. 
which is another reason it's going to, going to be such a close, intimate fellowship. You know, the thing that drives people apart and impedes relationships is deception and, and lack of trust, right? But if you knew you could trust someone all the time, 100% of the time, without any question, you would be completely, you know, in, in fellowship with them. And that's the way it's going to be one day in the new heavens and uh, the new earth. Um, so uh, then we see, in beginning in verse 9, not John's vision of the new Jerusalem, but John's visit to the new Jerusalem. Verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a pre most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear and crystal. And he goes on to describe it. So in this section we see notably things that John witnesses, but we also see some things that John does not see that are absent, if you will. And we've talked about these, but I'm just trying to put them in sequential order here as the text reveals them. So he sees the city itself, and it's filled with God's glory, and it shines like a, a precious jewel and pure gold. And so this is the Shekinah. You know, the Shekinah glory will return to the temple during the millennium, um, the Shekinah itself was embodied in Christ when he came, Hebrews chapter 1, during his earthly ministry. Um, but now we are to uh, live our lives in such a way that it demonstrates the glory of God and brings glory to God. Uh, but that Shekinah that left the temple uh, you know, in ancient times will not return until the millennium. But then, as we shall see, uh, in the eternal state there is no temple. There's just the you know, the, the, the glory of God. Um, uh, he sees the gates and the walls. Uh, there are 12 gates, each made of solid pearl, guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written uh, on the gates. Uh, by the way, um, we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and where does that come from? Obviously. Not a trick question. The 12 sons. The 12 sons, right? But, uh, of course, uh, Joseph was split, Joseph's tribe was split into two, right? Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons. And so there are actually 13, right? And as I've been researching a lot of these uh, secret societies and things like that and in, in, in finishing that chapter in Volume 2 of uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, uh, it kind of connected to me for the first time why Satanists love the number 13 because remember Satan is the imitator he tries to he wants to be God he's trying to create you know I have talk a lot about transhumanism in the new book and how that's their the Luciferians attempt to try to do the one thing they haven't done yet which is create God's the creator you know he started with nothing and spoke the world into existence and then Satan desired to overcome God he coveted the throne in heaven he, he was prideful God banished him from heaven. Uh, he took one-third of the demons that were allegiant to him with him, and now he's trying to take over uh, the earth. And so, he, you know, everything that he has done from the beginning, from the time that he confronted Eve in the garden, is to basically make himself out to be God and, and entice them that you can be God if you'll just follow me. And so he mimics, 
everything. And, and, and the Luciferians, Satan's co-conspirators on earth, uh, have always viewed, and you see this again and again in their writings in the Genesis account, God as the antagonist and Satan as the hero. Lucifer, the serpent, is the hero of the story. And God's the liar. And so that's why the number 13 is so symbolically significant in Satanism as it's trying to replicate God's chosen nation and plan and, and, and the 12 tribes of Israel. So uh, he sees the, the gates and the walls. And then we talked a bit about the uh, dimensions. Uh, you know, the city itself measures 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400 miles, that is, uh, if you do the math. And so that's a pretty big either cube or pyramid, as we talked about, whether you take it as a literal cube or pyramid, which it may well be, or just as a uh, figurative description of something that's perfect. Uh, uh, either way, it's pretty huge. The walls are 200 feet thick, according to verse 17. I mean, that's, that's a pretty thick wall. I mean, I've seen some safe rooms. We've had safe rooms at our houses before. Uh, but, man, 200 feet. Uh, I don't know. Is there a, where's Fred? Is there a, is there a caliber that will actually go through a 200-foot thick concrete wall? I don't even know if there is. Yeah, well, it'd have to be like a bunker bus, a military-grade, you know, ICBM or something. I don't know. But uh, that's a pretty thick wall. The foundations, each of the 12 foundations are inlaid with a different precious jewel. Uh, and uh, the street is made of pure gold like transparent glass look at verse 21 uh, the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass the 12 gates were 12 pearls each individual gate was one pearl I saw a story recently about a guy in Boston that was eating at a seafood restaurant and got a clam and uh, found a pearl in it and he didn't know pearls could be found in, in clams thought it was only oysters but it was in a clam and sure enough it's it's a thing and, and it's rare but it was worth a lot of money and he kind of got to keep it and it turned out to be a, quite a profitable dinner but uh but i mean imagine a pearl so huge that it it's the size of a gate you can make an entire gate out of it i mean even if it's just a regular gate like you walk through in your fence I mean, that's a pretty big pearl, but we're talking a massive gate to go with the massive walls and, and all of that. But it's, uh, and then we see in verse 26, uh, uh, the, the, the glory of the new Jerusalem, its gates shall not, uh, verse 25, its gates shall not at all by, shall not be shut at all by day. Uh, there shall be no night there. He reminds us of that a couple of times. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So we see this perpetual worship. Worship, uh, if you do a study on worship uh, throughout human history, it's taken on different aspects, different mechanisms, and it's looked different at different times. It went from simply walking and talking with God in the garden to you know, making sacrifices and altars to the more formal ritualistic system in the Judaistic code. Uh, today, our sacrifice of our faithfulness to the Lord in our daily lives is our spiritual act of worship. Uh, we worship Him not through just songs, you know. We worship through everything we do, through fellowship, through prayer, through reading and studying the Word of God. Uh, it's all part of the worship 
aspect. Worship is simply interacting with God in a way that gives Him His glory, right? So it doesn't should not surprise us then that in the eternal state, we're going to spend eternity worshiping. And unfortunately, especially in the Western American uh, church, that term worship has so much baggage associated with it that we don't even realize what an amazing blessing that's going to be. That should be at the top of the list of, bless of blessings in heaven someday. You know, and we're thinking, oh, we don't have to cry anymore. And oh, we, our bodies aren't going to ache anymore. And oh, we get to see our loved ones who died. And that's kind of what we think of when we think of the appeal of heaven. But uh, God's people historically have always viewed the, the opportunity and the privilege of worship as a high, with high regard. And that's been, like everything else, tainted by sin. And so, you know, when we get to heaven, that's no longer going to be an issue. It's going to be the, the most perfect worship. And yes, it'll involve, you know, singing, and it'll involve some of the, the types of things that we associate with worship in our culture today. But it's going to be much, much, uh, much, much different. Um, so, and then it's, it's interesting what John doesn't see. Obviously, we've talked about there's no temple there. Uh, the temple on earth always, from the tabernacle in the wilderness when the children of Israel left Egypt, to the temple that Solomon built, uh, to every temple since then, has always uh, been a <coughs> shadow of the substance to come, of the heavenly temple not built with hands, right? And it's just been a prefigurement. Um, and so much of what we see throughout the biblical history is, in fact, a prefigurement of things to come, right? Uh, the sacrificial system prefigured the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world. The church today, the Bride of Christ, prefigures the intimacy that Israel will have when they actually finally get their kingdom because they have believed the gospel and received their king. Um, so the temple uh, is no longer necessary when we're no longer living in the sin-stricken shadow, but instead are living in the sinless reality of a perfect creation. So if you're right there walking and talking with God, you don't need a temple to go meet with God, right? Um, and there's no need of the sun. Um, so it talks about, you know, one of the things that you see is you know, the reference to time. But obviously time in the eternal state must be reckoned differently than the way we reckon it on our calendars, right? Because there's no sun and there's no moon. Um, uh, and then again, a reference to the unfettered access. We see there's no closed gates. You know, the gates, I read that a moment ago, are always open, right? <clears throat> People can come and go. I mean, think about in the, you know, even in the first century times before the church was founded during the life and ministry of Christ, the way the temple was laid out, you had, you know, people outside the gates and you had the court of the Gentiles and you had the, you know, holy place where Jews could go and then you had the most holy place, Right. And it was just this tiered access, right? It's kind of like your frequent flyer access. You know, silver, gold, platinum. If you're platinum, you're going to probably get upgraded to first class. If you're silver, you're just going to get an extra Coke or something. I don't know. But you, you just have these different levels, right? Well, in the kingdom someday, the eternal kingdom, it's, we're all on the same level. There's no 
tiered access. We have different roles to play. <clears throat> Clearly, the Bible teaches that the church, the bride of Christ, will be serving and reigning and sitting on thrones and so forth. But And we're going to talk about that in chapter 22. But uh, we won't... Uh, you know, we won't be, there won't be a hierarchical system uh, like we sometimes see today. And then, of course, verse 27, we see, But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, again, and especially when we get to <coughs> the next chapter, you're going to see these types of statements, and it, it makes people think, well... If, if they can't get in, they must be there. And it's sort of, you, you get this picture sometimes that there's all these evil people that are kind of locked out. Again, that's not what he's saying here at all. Uh, this is, you got to compare Scripture to Scripture. At this point in the new heavens, the great white throne judgment has already happened. That happened in chapter 20 of Revelation. It happened at the end of the millennium. All the unbelievers who refused to receive the free gift of salvation paid for by the blood of Christ are cast into the great white throne, as is Satan and the beast and the false prophet and everyone else is cast into the uh, eternal lake of fire. So uh, when he says there shall by no means enter it, he's just saying, you know, I would paraphrase this, there won't be anything like this there. <laughs> Whereas right now there are things like this there, <laughs> here, right? Uh, we see more and more of it, especially as the Luciferians get their way and continue to... Uh, deceive and these great last days of deception and the spirit of the antichrist continues to rise and show itself uh, we see all kinds of evil all around us but not then we won't have anything uh, like that no impurity no evil no sin so let's just pause there for a minute i've, I've kind of thrown a lot at you and maybe you have some questions or comments or maybe you have a question about something else related uh, to the end times but uh, who has a question at this point Yes. Where does the millennial temple go? Where does the millennial temple go? So the temple is on the Temple Mount, but it's expanded, and it's massive. And uh, if you go back, we when we were talking about uh, characteristics of the millennium, and we looked at like geographic, social, spiritual, all that, uh, we talked about some of the geographical characteristics being the expansion of the actual physicality of that region so yeah it's going to go you know where it's always gone right there on the temple mount oh where do, i thought you meant where will it be oh, no, yeah no. where does this go like my <laughs> kids are unloading their groceries and they say where does this go well it goes in that cabinet that's what i thought you meant so what happens to the yeah it's destroyed like everything else in the old earth yeah, so the old temple is as, glor as glorious as it is, according to Ezekiel, and as magnificent as it is when Christ is sitting on the throne in it, it's still part of the old earth, which is tainted by sin. And so it will be destroyed like everything else. Yeah. Sorry, I misunderstood your question. <laughs> Somebody else? Yes? Where do they get uh, pearls big enough? Well, it's a giant, uh, it's a giant oyster. Yeah. It's, sounds like a sounds like a, a Hollywood movie from the '60s. Uh, beware the giant oyster. You know. Uh, 
No, I mean, everything is going to be, you know, uh, of course, we're talking about the eternal state, so God just creates them that way. But as the curse of sin is minimized, when Christ comes back during the thousand-year millennial phase, all of the uh, crops, if you will, and things are going to be bigger and better and more luscious and all of that. They'll be banned. Land oysters. Oh yeah. Well, that's true. Yeah, they have to be a land oyster too because there's no sea in the kingdom in the eternal state. That's right. So, and they're not holdovers from the old earth because there's no hideouts. You know, it's all destroyed. So, God just says, "Bring me a giant pearl," and boom, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. John yeah, the size of the of the pearl is commensurate with the level of God's frustration with mankind by that point after six thousand years or whatever it's been. Good point. Yes. So, yeah, the question is how do other religions or denominations or theological frameworks deal with this. So every religion, well let's just talk about the Christian religions, you know, denominations, things like Catholicism, that's not a denomination, but Catholicism, you mentioned Calvinism, things like that. So they all have an eschatology. So uh, if you you know study theology, there are the classic ten categories, you know, Bible, God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Church, uh, salvation, sanctification, angels, demons, man, sin, and eschatology, the end times. And so, uh, you know, every one, every one of these groups is going to have their view on each of those ten areas. Uh, as it relates to Calvinists, most of them, not all, but most are amillennial or at best historic premillennial, which just means that they don't believe in a literal rapture as being distinct from the second coming. They don't see a distinction between the church and Israel. They're all part of one group. So their eschatology chart would look nothing like this. It would just be a line with a dot at the end of it. We're living in the line. The dot is Christ comes back. And it's all heaven, heaven and hell and we're done. Right. So that's because they, they spiritualize all of these passages as we talked about when we did that series on how to... Uh, read and understand the Bible, it all comes down to correctly handling the Word of God. And if you take, you know, passages and you allegorize them, then you can you can discard just about everything, anything you want, right? So their eschatology for a lot of, for, for amillennialists, ah meaning no millennium, millennial, no millennium, that's where that comes from, so they don't see a millennium. Uh, they, uh, they take the whole book of Revelation, let's see if I have that chart in here, uh, as a recapitulation of the church age. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So this is their, this is how they view the book of Revelation, right? So the first three chapters are just kind of telling the story of the church symbolically through those seven churches that are actually seven historical churches, but in their view, they're just this huge metaphor for the, the whole global church. Uh, chapters four through seven uh, is another reiteration or recapitulation of the church age so you know that's the seal judgments chapters 8 through 11 the trumpet judgments are yeah yeah here this is all talking about the church age the present age 
uh, chapters 12 to 14, same thing. And then you get to the bold judgments and, and so forth. Uh, and, and, it's just, and then 20 to 22, where we're studying right now, is just a re restatement of the church age. Now, again, I don't know how you can get there for a number of reasons. First of all, no matter how you slice it, that's the reason I put that red arrow there, Christ comes back in chapter 19. And now this is tough, so follow me on this. Chapter 20 comes after chapter 19, right? At least it does in my math. So the kingdom has to come after Christ comes back, not before. So they would, they, they would say Christ doesn't come back till the end of Revelation. And then everything's new and, and everything else up to that is just this present church age. So they misunderstand Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, even though the first th uh, 69 weeks were fulfilled literally to the day. Somehow it's all metaphorical. They misunderstand the teachings of Christ that he's going to come back in like manner and establish the kingdom. Uh, all the promises that involve land boundaries and specifics and dimensions like Ezekiel 40 to 48, which give the dimensions of the millennial phase of the kingdom. Let's, put, let's get rid of this chart. This makes me nervous even having it up there. Uh, the, the millennial phase of the kingdom, you know, all the details like the boundaries or the, uh, the geographic you know, topography that I referenced a second ago, all of that's just cast aside. It, it means nothing. It's just one giant metaphor. Uh, Roman Catholicism is, is uh, it's, it's, it's a different animal altogether. You know, they believe they are the kingdom and the Pope is the king. And so... Uh, they feel like we're living in the kingdom today. Uh, Christ, or I mean, Peter was the first pope, they think. They misunderstand what Jesus said in Matthew 16 to Peter. Um, upon this rock I will build my church. What Jesus was saying was upon this rock of what you just said. Remember, Dean and I were talking about this before we started. You know, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And you know, Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Bingo. And upon that rock I will build my church. And they misunderstand that. And they say, No, Peter is the first pope. So, uh, so they have an eschatology, but it would be similar to evangelical amillennialism, just that someday Christ is going to come back, the good go to heaven, the bad go to hell, and it's all over. That's really a, the sum total of their eschatology. So, yeah. Um, those that deny the rapture or say the rapture comes with the coming of Christ, Matthew 24, verse 22, uh, for, where he talks about it, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. Mm -hmm. For the sake of the elect, these would be cut short. Isn't that uh, a prediction of the rapture or no. taking the church out? No, so uh, Matthew 24 and 25 do not t discuss the rapture at all. The rapture was not even hinted at until the next day. This is Wednesday of Passion Week when Jesus gives this teaching about, uh, from the top of the Mount of Olives. The next day in the upper room, uh, the, night, the very night that he's betrayed and ends up going to the cross by Friday morning and he's in the grave, the next day in the upper room on Thursday, he, he, he begins to hint at the rapture. He says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away, I will come again that where I am, you may be also. Clearly a reference to the rapture. He doesn't say I'm coming all the way to the earth. 
But uh, Matthew 24 and 25 is talking about the second coming. Well, what does it mean then that these days will be cut short? Well, he's just saying if this, the terror and uh, devastation of the seven-year tribulation were allowed to continue, eventually there'd be nobody left. But it's, it's you know, not. It's got a prescribed uh, timetable. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty clear. So everything in Matthew 24 and 25 is referencing Christ's return, and you see it here on the uh, chart, Armageddon and the second coming up there on the right. That's what he's talking about, because the disciples wanted to know what will be the sign of your coming and of the kingdom? When will the kingdom come and, and be, be, the, a, this age end? And so he says, well, here's when. And he gives them all of these signs. And uh, so, you know, and it parallels perfectly with Revelation chapter 6 and the seal judgments. But he talks about in verse 15, the abomination of desolation. Well, we know that happens at the midpoint. Uh, that's when the Antichrist takes the throne, demands that everybody worship him, sets himself up as God, Second Thessalonians 2 tells us. Uh, and so and then, and then he turns his uh, sights on Israel up to that point. Uh, it, it, they've been under protection, three and a half years of protection. Not that there's not utter chaos and devastation going on on the earth with the wrath of God being poured out, but as it relates to Israel, they've been a party to this treaty that was signed in Daniel 9.27, the, the signing of the peace treaty that starts the seven years going. At the midpoint, he breaks that treaty and, 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 and just starts hunting them down and, and killing Jews right and left. So, All right, well, we are out of time for this morning. Um, we will pick up with chapter 22 next week and uh, bring your questions because uh, we'll just kind of play this out over the next few weeks. Uh, uh, with some Q&A uh, related to the end times. And we'll try to go back and review a few highlights of what we've talked about. But we're coming to the end, to the end of the Bible, the end of the age, the end of the story, the end of the topic of the end times. So uh, we will reconvene here a little bit after 10 for worship. And those of you live streaming, typically the live stream kicks back on around 1025 to 1035.